Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 15th of May, Andrew Butt taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andrew took us through the book of Romans. Andrew is one of the teaching pastors at King's Church Hastings and is a regular writer and teacher on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Romans, then, uh, is a really good partnering to the doctrine of salvation. She works really well. Romans is arguably one of the most significant books in the Bible, both for the content it gives us, the way it helps us to understand the gospel, helps us actually to tie together much of the Bible story, that kind of horizontal thing, but also for the influence it's had. You might or might not be familiar with names and churches, like Augustine, Luther, uh, Wesley, Barthes, different people have been hugely influenced by this letter. And of course, there's loads of Christians we'd never know about and know that loads of us would have been hugely blessed by and influenced by uh, the truths um, outlined in this book. A quick bit of background. This is a letter written by Paul. He's very clear. He wrote the letter in verse one. No one really has kind of questioned that or debated that. Probably written to a scribe, as was often his practice. Most people agree it's probably written from the city of Corinth. We know that in this letter, Paul is hoping to head to Jerusalem soon. And we know that Paul stayed in Greece uh, on the way to Jerusalem before his visit to Jerusalem. So that would make good sense. It seems the letter was transported by a lady who'd called Phoebe. She's mentioned in uh, chapter 16, I think it is. She was from a place called Kenkrai, which is just next to Corinth. So it kind of makes a bit of good sense there. There's a guy called Gaius who's mentioned in the letter. He sends his greetings to the Romans and there is a Gaius mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So it seems, again, this could be a Corinth linked. And there's actually an inscription from ancient Corinth which mentions an Erastus who was a governor or something, I can't remember what his title was, there's something in the city. And uh, Erastus is also mentioned as being where Paul is when he writes his letter. So it's possible that the Erastus mentioned here in Rome, uh, Romans sending his greetings from wherever Paul is to the Romans, it's possible he's the same Erastus mentioned in this description in Corinth. It's probably written around 57 AD, so we're a few decades after the death of Jesus, we are depending on how you date things, kind of five to ten years from the death of Paul. And it's written to the church in Rome, which had probably started when people who were there at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, when many turned and res- uh, responded to the gospel, trusted in Jesus as Messiah, when they then went back to their various places. We know there were people there at Pentecost from Rome. It's likely some went back and established the church at that point. And it was a church of both Jewish and gentile believers and the recipients links to the question of purpose and situation why did paul write this letter what was the situation he was in what was the situation situation they were in? and knowing that is always really helpful knowing the situations going on helps us understand why would this kind of be said knowing the purpose of a letter gives us kind of um some guidelines some framework within which to work And so I'm going to give you a few moments in breakout rooms to look at some passages that are mentioned there in the notes and see if you can determine from having a quick read of those what's going on in Paul's life, what's his situation, what's going on in the church in Rome, 
which he is uh, engaging with and responding to, and how might those situations shape the purpose of the letter and why Paul is writing. So let's take you know, seven minutes maybe uh, in uh, breakout rooms to have a discussion about those. I hope that's a helpful exercise. It's always worth, I say, thinking about what um, clues are there, signs are there about the situation of both writer and recipient in these letters and how might that shape the purpose. Very quickly to overview what I kind of found when I did that, I think Paul is, was writing to church, he hasn't yet visited, but we know he wants to visit them. That's his intention. Uh, his intention is to get there. He wants to be mutually, uh, wants to be mutually blessed by it, to benefited in two ways, which I wonder if it might be a bit of a schmoozing with a church he doesn't know, saying, you know, you can bless me as much as I can bless you. He's trying to get them on side. So I think a big purpose of this letter is to introduce himself. They've not met him. They've not heard him preach. They'd heard about him, no doubt. Um, but actually, many of them wouldn't really know him. And so he's trying to introduce what it is he preaches. He's introducing his gospel, his way that he presents uh, the truth of what God has done in sending his son, which is one of the reasons why the letter gives us a wonderful overview of the gospel. And it's certainly not a systematic theology. It's still a situational letter written into a particular situation. But it is probably, in a sense, the, the single most comprehensive overview of the gospel we have in one book in the Bible. And that's probably why. The Roman situation is a bit more difficult to see, but you might have noticed lots of references to first to the Jew and then to the Greek, lots of references to Jew and Greek. And then when we get to chapters 14 and 15, particularly, again, a lot of stuff about Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. It seems there may have been some sort of um, antagonism between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in the church in Rome. It may be that through various historical circumstances, the Gentile believers had kind of um, had the ascendancy, they got control of the churches and that the Jewish Christians weren't uh, very happy about that and there was kind of various tensions. And so as Paul presents the gospel, he's showing them how the gospel can unite them, how the gospel is meant to bring Jewish and Gentile believers together, bring any believers together, not to divide. We'll see that kind of as we go through. Looking at the overall theme, I think the overall theme links to that purpose of Paul wanting to introduce himself, introduce his gospel. And there are various ways that people have understood the letter. Some people, um, the ways really people have divided into four parts, the letter into four parts. And we basically, over the last uh, few centuries, worked through the different parts of people thinking each one is the key thing. So in the time of the Reformation, Luther and people felt that chapters one to four and justification by faith were the key thing. Beginning in the 20th century, you get people like Schweitzer and Reed who think that chapters five to eight, the idea of union with Christ, being united to Christ is the most important theme of the letter. You then move on in the later 20th century, people like Stendhal to chapters nine to 11, how uh, or the place of Gentiles and Jews in salvation history, so that being the most important. So most recently, you get people like Francis Watson saying actually it's about unity of Jewish and Gentile believers in how they live together in the church, chapters 12 to 16. Kind of makes you think, where are we going to go next? Because we've now reached the end of the, the options. Where's someone going to take it next? But I think the best overall option for the overall theme really is the gospel. The letter both starts and ends with talk of the gospel. And actually, as we'll see, the whole of what Paul says seems to flow from this kind of thematic statement in verse 16 of chapter one about the gospel. He's explaining the gospel, which is God's power for salvation. 
And I think you can understand each of those four sections as saying something about the gospel. And that's what we'll see and kind of how I present it as we go through it. There are also those important sub themes. There's definitely a theme about obedience. The letter again starts and ends with references to obedience, obedience of faith, the obedience which comes from, which flows from faith. Starts and ends the letter, but also chapters five to eight, especially we have quite a lot to say about obedience, which flows from faith, flows from salvation. And also 12 to 16, very much about obedience to, to God and to his commandments. And then another theme also is this thing of the unity of Jews and Gentiles, where the gospel reconciles people, brings people back together. And the final thing before we dive into the letter itself is just a few notes on how we read Romans well. How do we responsibly read and interpret and understand Romans? In a way, that's just like reading any part of the Bible. There are some key questions we always want to bring to the Bible. We always want to be asking, what did the author want to communicate to the original audience? So we're always asking, what was Paul trying to communicate to the Romans? And then we learn from that. And then the second question we ask, and it's important to do them separately, is what impact should what Paul wanted to say to the Romans make on us and how do we respond to that? We first got to understand what was he saying to them. We then ask, well, how does that impact us today? Separating those two out as two different steps helps us avoid some misunderstandings. Often our Bible reading misunderstandings come when we jump to what does this say to me without first saying what did it say then to those people? Those two steps are really important. Um, considering genre is helpful. Romans is a letter. So we're not reading a story here. We're not reading law here. We're leading a, a letter, what we might call discourse, which is like a flow of thought. So we're expecting to find some sort of logical progression. And we want to follow that and trace that out. And that will very much be the case in Romans. And we're going to see that really with Romans, we want to, what we could call trace the argument. We want to follow the journey, the path that Paul is leading us down. And for that, it's really helpful just to quickly think about connectives, because actually if we want to trace how all the things that Paul is saying kind of add up, how they flow together, how they're a journey together. We want to think about how he connects everything. And connectives are just those little words that connect one phrase to another and help you know how they're related. And in English, we use them sometimes, but not all the time. In Greek, you always have a connective. Every phrase is linked to the next phrase, the next phrase by a connective. That just helps us to work out well, actually what is going on, what are the, um, uh, the connections, what is the flow of thought. And so some real attention to detail is important when reading a book like Romans. And if you're wanting to do kind of proper, a bit of wrestling with a bit of study of a book like Romans, using a more literal translation like the ESV or something is helpful because those connectives will be in there. And there are lots of different types of those little connecting words. There are ones that are connective, that just join two things together, words like and and also. There are ones which contrast, but rather or however they're contrasting the things on either side. There are ones which are correlative, making a correlation. These two things stand in parallel. On the one hand, this, on the other hand, this, both this and that. There are some which talk about alternatives. There's this or that, there's alternatives between the two. And the most important ones, though, for Romans are explanatory and inferential. Explanatory connectives say this thing here is true because of this thing I'm now saying. Statement A is true because of statement B. A is true for B or A is C, uh, that is B. And the inferential kind of flips that round the other way. So inferential is this is true. And because this is true, this other thing is also true. 
So A is true, therefore this is true. And the most important thing to understand for Romans is the exclamatory connective, because you'll find if you read a translation of the ESV, the little word for comes up, I don't know how many times actually, I should find how many times, it comes up time and time and time again, just linking statement by statement by statement. So for example, Romans 1, 15 to 17, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also here in Rome. Why is that? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is that? For it is the power of God for salvation. Well, why is that? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. See how each of these statements is explaining what comes before. And just by noticing that and thinking that through, it helps us to trace, okay, how is Paul progressing this through? How are we um, understanding this and following the throat of thought that he is uh, tracing out? So the question to ask always is how does this phrase or this paragraph, whatever it is we're looking at, how does it connect to what comes before it? Kind of why is Paul saying this here? He's not doing random stuff over here's this point, now this point, now this point. He's going on taking us on a journey. And we want to try and follow that journey with him. Let's, what's time? Let's make a time. Let's dive into the very first of Romans and we'll take a coffee break in five or 10 minutes time uh, before we come back and do the rest. <clears throat> what we're going to do really the rest of our time is to try and give a survey of Romans. I kind of think the most helpful thing to do is to walk through the argument together. So we're going to use the next hour and we'll be some breaks in there, don't worry, to kind of trace this through and see this, I guess, as a map, that kind of big picture view of Romans. And I really encourage you after today to go back to read the letter again, maybe have the notes with you to use this map and to kind of trace uh, what Paul is saying through it. I've said already, I think we can divide the letter into four sections all around the gospel. The gospel, God's power for present salvation. Then the gospel, God's power for future salvation. The gospel, God's power for the fulfillment of his promises. And finally, the gospel, God's power for transformed living. But before all of those comes the just the introduction to the letter which is very classic for kind of Paul's letters, classic kind of style where he introduces himself, he greets his readers. And that theme of the gospel is there right up front and centre very early. His role as an apostle is all about the gospel. He says he's an apostle of the gospel and the gospel just means good news. It's a word that was used to announce victories in far off lands. A messenger would come back from the battlefield and announce the gospel, the good news of the victory that had been won. But then it took on more and more significance throughout the Old Testament of being the good news about what God would do for his people. And it's just important to notice that the gospel is good news. It's not an equation. It's not advice. It's not wisdom. Sometimes we think of the gospel as a, a kind of equation of kind of my sin plus Jesus' death equals forgiveness. And there's obviously some truth in that. But the gospel primarily is a story, it's a, a news report of what God has done rather than being wisdom or uh, advice or uh, an equation and I think it's seen in the way that Paul introduces the gospel here it's the gospel uh, of God from God proclaimed in the scriptures it's the gospel concerning his son this is the good news the news story about what has God has done in sending his son he's the son descended from David according to the flesh i.e he's human he's fully human but also he's declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead this is not Paul saying that Jesus becomes the son of God when he's resurrected. Jesus was not adopted as God's son 
at that point. Jesus has for all eternity past been the son of God. He's uh, eternal with God, co-equal with God. But he's declared the son of God in power by the resurrection. It's the empower bit which is key. This is talk about the ascension of Jesus, the enthronement of Jesus. The fact he's ruling and reigning, waiting for all things to be put under his feet. So the gospel is the declaration of what God has done in sending his son. It's the announcement of that, that news. Ultimately, it's the fact that Jesus is king. And Paul's role is to proclaim that gospel, he says, and to bring about through it the obedience of faith, the obedience that flows from faith. Notice we talked earlier, the gospel is salvation from something, but it's also for something. We say from the wrath of God into obedience with God, an obedient relationship with God. Ultimately, it's in a sense salvation into worship, obedience is an act of worship, and we'll see later in Romans 1 that the problem with sin is it's misdirected worship, it's worship going in the wrong way to uh, in the wrong direction. So it makes sense that salvation should restore us to right worship. And Paul, as you know from the stuff you looked at your group, tells us at this point he wants to go to Rome, he's not been there, he wants to go there, he wants to preach the gospel for them to be mutually uh, benefit from that, to mutually um, uh, benefit and bless each other and he says he's under a debt to preach the gospel he's feeling this weight of responsibility to do it and that's not a debt in the sense of something he's got to repay to them that they've already paid to him it's a debt as in he's been giving it and he must now pass it on he feels this obligation this duty to pass on um, the letter uh, the pass on the gospel and that makes him so eager to preach the gospel to the christians in rome and notice He's writing to Christians and he says, I want to come, I want to preach the gospel to you. That's just as a little side note, it's really important to notice. The gospel is just as relevant to us as those who are already Christians as to those who are not Christians. We never move beyond um, the gospel. I think it's Keller talks about it being the, the hub of the wheel from which all the spokes come out. It's not just one spoke, actually, it's the very hub from which everything else flows. We never progress beyond or mature beyond the gospel. As having told them he desperately wants to come and proclaim the gospel to them, he now begins to outline why that is and what that gospel is. And the whole rest of the letter will be an explanation of um, what this gospel actually is. It flows from this statement that he's under this obligation, this deep desire to preach the gospel to them. He's about to tell them why, and then he's going to tell them what that gospel is. But that's a good point to Paul. So we're having an introduction to Romans before we dive into the main bulk of what it says. So it's five to 11, so let's come back, that's right, yeah, at five past 11, quick 10 minute coffee break, and uh, we'll jump into the rest of Romans one. So Paul, having introduced the fact that he wants to come, he wants to preach the gospel to the guys in Rome, now spends the rest of the letter basically explaining what that gospel is. He starts by explaining he's so good to preach the gospel for, this is verse 17 in chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's desire to preach the gospel and the reason he's utterly unashamed of the gospel is because it is power. It's not just words, it's not just ideas or a good story. Actually, it's the power to save. It saves anyone who believes in Jesus and that anyone, bit the Jew or Greek obviously is an important theme because we talked about this division that was in the church. The question of course then is, well, how is it God's power to save? But Paul says it's because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for that faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
And this statement about the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel is being one of the most important and controversial in the understandings of the letter throughout church history. What does it mean for the righteousness of God to be revealed? Really, what is the righteousness of God in this particular context? If you're familiar with any of the story of the Protestant Reformation and of Martin Luther, you'll know it's this verse and the righteousness of God there and him changing his understanding of the righteousness of God there, which kind of set the whole thing into motion. The righteousness of God. Righteousness means uh, kind of rightness, doing what's right. We've talked about it a bit earlier in terms of justification, doing everything you should do, doing nothing that you should not do. It could be here about God's character. It could be about God and his character being righteous, that actually there's a revelation of the character of God as one who is always just, who is always fair, who always does what he should do in the gospel. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, it's about justification. In some ways, that's not immediately obvious in the gospel. To justify sinners sounds like an unrighteous thing. So it could be Paul saying, as he's going to explain, no, we see the righteousness of God in the way he does this, in the way he does it through his son. So it could be about the, the character of God as the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God here could be God's action, his saving action. In the Old Testament, God's um, salvation actions and his righteousness are often kind of equated with each other. They're placed in parallel. God's righteousness is sometimes a way of talking about the acts that he takes to uh, save. So the revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel could be talking about God's saving acts, the things that he does to uh, actually to enact salvation. Or it could be that this righteousness of God isn't actually about him, but it's something he gives. It could be the righteousness, not that is true of God, but that is given by God, a gift of righteousness given by God to people who aren't righteous, but to make us righteous. Later in the letter, Paul will certainly talk about the gift of righteousness in uh, chapter 5, verse 17. And all three of those actually could be right. And it may be that it's a deliberate ambiguity. He's talking about God's character, about his saving action, and about the gift of righteousness. Paul may really be saying that all three of those are revealed in the gospel. But it's maybe fractionally more likely that he's talking about the righteousness of God as a gift given by God to people. In Paul, it tends to be when he talks about the righteousness of God and connects it with faith, it's a gift given to people. When he talks about the righteousness of God not related to faith, it's talking about who God is or what God does. So in the gospel, or the gospel is God's power to save, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This gift that God gives us from faith for faith, i.e. all by faith. But before Paul can get to explaining how that happens, how this gift of righteousness is revealed, the revelation of the righteousness of God, he first needs to reveal why it's needed. Why is it necessary for God to justify sinners? Why is that gift needed? And so he actually first talks about the revelation of God's wrath, of the problem. In a sense, he paints the darkness or shows us the darkness so we can see why the light is needed, why the light is so good. And so that verse flows into actually verse 18, the revelation of the righteousness of God. It's needed for the wrath of God is revealed, present tense is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We need the revelation of the righteousness of God because at the moment, the wrath of God against sin is being revealed. God's wrath is his just and fair uh, punishment of sin, his right and fitting response to it. 
And in four sections, here in the middle of chapter three, Paul begins to explain what this revelation of the wrath of God is and why it's such a problem. In chapters one, verses 18 to 32, he explains that the wrath of God is being uh, revealed, is being poured out against unrighteousness, which is a suppression of the truth. He says, actually, the fact that God exists and something of who God is, something of his divine qualities is actually evident to us in what's around us in the world. There's enough in creation around us, he says, that we should know there's a God who is worthy of our thanks and worthy of our praise. We as creatures should recognise there's a creator from what there is around us. But he says, instead, what we all do is we suppress that truth. We ignore that truth. And rather than worshipping and giving thanks to the creator who's deserving of that, Instead, we give it to created things, sometimes in very obvious ways in making idols, sometimes in the less obvious ways of actually giving our thanks and our love, our devotion, our obedience to things other than God. We turn away from what's revealed to us in nature. There's no excuse, Paul says, because actually the evidence is available to all of us. We turn away from God. And because of that, God gives us over to our bad choices. And it's the giving over, the allowing to continue in sin, which is the outworking of the wrath of God. So right now, the wrath of God is being poured out on those who don't follow him in allowing them to continue in their disobedience, which ultimately is not good for them. Which, as a side note, is a nice little kind of reminder for us as Christians of the absolute folly of engaging in sin. Why would we choose to do the things that if God was going to judge us, he would abandon us to and use his punishment against us? There's nothing good that comes from sin. But Paul gives his repeated refrain several times over. And these examples of sinning and turning away from him each time saying God gives us over to those things or gives people outside of Christ over to those things as judgment because we've turned away from him. But then chapter two, he knows there'll be some who are reading him thinking, yes, aren't those unrighteous sinners awful? Aren't those probably Gentile idol worshippers awful people? I'm so glad I'm not like one of them. But Paul turns around and shows actually they are just as guilty as the people he's just been talking about. That actually they judge people for these things, but they themselves are doing them as well. They too would experience the wrath of God. He's probably particularly addressing the Jews within the congregation who might have been looking down on Gentile sinners thinking, yes, aren't they awful? God says, well, uh, Paul says, no, God shows no partiality. You Jews is just as much under the wrath of God if you're doing these things as actually any Gentile will be. And he knows that as he says that, the Jews will reject again. And they might say, well, hang on a minute, though. We've got the law and we've got circumcision. We're protected. We've got these things which protect us, which guard us from judgment. They guard us from God. We'll be okay. And Paul says, well, you have got the law, but actually having the law is no good. It's keeping the law that really matters. You can't just have the law and use it as a kind of magic talisman to protect you from judgment. You've got to keep the law, he says. And circumcision, he says, yes, circumcision, you've got that. But actually circumcision, he says, if it's just external, if it's just physical, doesn't mean anything. Circumcision of the heart, a deep inward work, is what really matters and what really counts. He's telling you, you can't just say you've got the law and you've got circumcision, therefore you're not like those sinners under the wrath of God. Actually, if you're not keeping the law, if your heart hasn't been circumcised, your heart devotion isn't to God, you too are under judgment. Which leads him really to the conclusion in kind of um, the, the middle part of chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, of just all of us start under the wrath of God. All of us are guilty. 
he gives this long string of Old Testament texts just to really hit home the point. No one is righteous, not one. No one of us can stand before God and claim that we are in a right legal standing with him on our own. Every single one of us is under the wrath of God. So there's this huge problem, this great darkness into which the gospel comes. Paul has to help us to understand the nature of that before we can understand the good news of the gospel. We are the problem, our guilt that we deserve God's wrath and the problem, the law can't save us. We've seen the law is all very well, but actually he says that the law can't actually save us. And so against the revelation of God's wrath, Paul then brings the revelation of God's righteousness. Thinking back to what he said earlier in chapter one, that actually in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The solution to this great darkness, this great problem, is God's righteousness revealed to us in the gospel given to us. Chapter 3, verse 23, he says, all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a summary of chapters 1 and 2 in the start of 3. All of us sin, all of us fall short. But then he says, and are justified, which we know means declared righteous, placed in a right legal standing. God looks at us as if we've done everything we should have done and nothing we should not have done, are justified by his grace as a gift. It's all given. It's not earned, it's not um, gained through our own actions it's given as a gift salvation comes it's that gift of righteousness god declares as righteousness all based on what he does but of course we knowing proverbs 17 verse 15 should be saying but hang on a minute how can that happen how can god say to people who are rightly under his wrath actually you've been justified that you are righteous that's a, a terrible miscarriage of justice and paul explains how it's possible it's possible through the redemption the paying of the price that is in christ jesus whom god put forward as a propitiation by his blood god can justify sinners because of jesus because jesus is the redemption the one who pays the price that we need to pay he is he says the propitiation a weird word which i have to every time i teach them this look up the pronunciation of because it's very hard to get right that may not be right anyway propitiation is what i say this is a complex, a debated term. You might sometimes see it translated as mercy seat. Sometimes it's translated as expiation, which is about removing guilt. It's kind of um, uh, like disinfectant, wiping off, wiping off the dirt. But actually, I think the best, best uh, understanding or translation of the word behind it is propitiation, which is not just the kind of wiping off of guilt. It's not just a um, cleaning up. Actually, it's an appeasing of anger. It's a pacifying someone. Actually, it isn't just that in the death of Jesus, that the blood of Jesus washes away our guilt. It's actually that Jesus has taken upon himself. He has experienced the punishment of God. That wrath being poured out in uh, chapter one actually was poured out on Jesus. So it doesn't get poured out on us. God has just and fair anger against sin, as we said, and that needs to be appeased. That needs to be dealt with. Jesus on the cross takes that for us. So God doesn't justify sin is by overlooking sin. It's not that God goes, actually, sin isn't that bad after all. We'll just kind of put that to one side and you can be justified. Actually, it's that he has to pay the price. He has to provide the solution himself. And he's done that in his son. So therefore, God can justify sinners. God can justify the unrighteous. And yet he is still righteous. He is still just. He maintains his justice. This is a defense of God showing that he hasn't done anything that he should not have done. 
and he uh, then moves on to the uh, kind of second half of that in chapters four, where the end of chapter three into chapter four, we had the revelation of the righteousness of God, and it's from, oh, sorry, it's the power of God to save for everyone who believes the righteousness of God from faith to faith. The faith, how is it that we receive this gift, this righteousness of God? Well, faith is the way that happens. And the second half of, or the end of chapter three into chapter four, Paul focuses in on that point. He's explained the righteousness now it's the faith. In chapter four, he shows us God's always acted in this way. Because someone might go, well, what about Abraham? He wasn't justified by faith. But Paul says, no, it's always been by faith. Even Abraham actually was justified by faith when he trusted in God's promises. He quotes Genesis 15, six, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted, kind of uh, reckoned, considered as righteousness. It's always been the way that God has justified people by faith. Which is why, going back to the true and false statements we did earlier, I think it's false to say that God saved people in a completely different way to how he saved them in the Old Testament, how he saved them in the New Testament. Salvation is always by faith in God's promises to save. Uh, the things attached to it, different forms of sacrifice and stuff, might look different in different places in the Bible, but salvation is always by faith in God's promise to save. And that's the point that Paul wants to make here salvation is available because of what jesus has done and it's received through faith so that is present salvation that's what we get to experience now that present outpouring of the wrath of god we get rescued from that in present salvation that god declares right now that we are righteous because of what he's done for us in his son but that leaves open a question it's all very well god saying that about us right now but there's still going to be a day when we stand before the judgment seat of christ There'll still be a point when we are judged. Can we know, can we be sure that at that point, the verdict he's given now will still be true then? Can we have confidence that we'll still be justified, as it were? He'll still declare us to be righteous on that day when it comes. And I think it's that question which the next section of Romans is wrestling with, chapters 5 to chapters 8. He doesn't state that explicitly, but this section starts and ends with talk of that future time talk of future salvation we've had no talk of it so far now we get this talk of it bookending this section and he shows us about the nature of salvation what salvation actually is what happens to us through the gospel guarantees the fact that if we are justified now we will also be justified on that day when it comes salvation is that kind of wonderfully comprehensive in chapter five he talks about our confidence we can have because of the nature of salvation because of our past justification, we've been justified. We now have peace with God and we stand in grace, which leads to our future hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says there's a, just a, a link, a connection to it. We can have confidence in it. And the reason, he says, is from the lesser to the greater. He says, actually, if, if Christ has, no, sorry, from the greater to the lesser. If Christ has justified us by his blood now, then, of course, we'll be justified later on Judgment Day. We were enemies now, and yet God made us friends. He welcomed us in. He justified us. We've already been justified now. How much more, how much easier will it be, in a sense, for him to justify us now? If we've now been reconciled through the death of Christ, how much more, Paul says, will we be, given, will be saved by his life? If he's done this huge thing here, of course he'll do the thing there. It's a bit like if someone invites you around and cooks you your favourite food, a great banquet of your favourite food, and you sit down and there's no knife and fork to eat it with, you're not going to feel afraid to ask for a knife and fork at that point. 
everything that has already been done is going to give you confidence. Of course, they're going to do the small thing of giving you a knife and fork if they've gone to all of this trouble. If God has already declared us righteous and we were enemies, if he has saved us through the death of Christ, of course, he'll do the small thing of accepting us then. We've already been reconciled to him. And then the second half of chapter five, he gives us another reason for this great confidence we can have that we will be accepted on that day. He talks about the way that God views people, humanity, as being in two groups. Each group has a different figurehead. Adam is figurehead for one group. Christ is the figurehead for um, another group. And the actions of those figureheads affect the people in the groups. It's kind of like when you were back at school, at primary school, it used to happen to me when one person would do something wrong. And because the teacher didn't know who it was and no one would own up to it, everyone got in trouble because of it. And everyone would lose the right to go outside at break time or whatever it might be. But then if one person plucked up and admitted that they did it, even actually if it wasn't them who did it, everyone else would get to go out to playtime, but they would suffer the consequences. The actions of the one on both sides, the actions of the one affect the many. That's the kind of concept we've got here. The actions of the one, whether it be Adam or Christ, affect the people in their groups. And we all start in Adam. We were descended from Adam. We all start in him and we receive the results of his actions. We receive the condemnation. We receive the verdict of guilty. We're deserving of wrath and condemnation in his group. But Paul says what happens when you become a Christian is you're moved out of Adam and you're placed into Christ. And if you're in Christ, then everything that's true of Christ becomes true of you. You get the results of his action, his action of obedience, his death, his life of obedience. We in Christ become like Christ in that sense. We receive all of those blessings of salvation. And Paul's point is you move from Adam to Christ. But once you're in Christ, you can't keep hopping in and out. Salvation isn't just a kind of a, a bit of a spring clean. You can make yourself dirty again. You can get yourself in a mess again. Actually, it's being moved out of Adam and placed into Christ and you can't hop in and out of Christ. If you're in Christ now, you'll be in Christ on that final day. So you will be accepted. We have been uh, permanently placed there. Paul is telling us this to give us reassurance that on that day, we will be accepted. We'll still be justified. God will say we are righteous because we are in Christ. All the way through, remember, Paul is tracing this thread of argument. So he's always thinking, well, what are people going to say in response to this? And in chapter six, he's thinking, well, actually, chapter five, that raises some questions. If we know with certainty that we're going to be justified at the end point, then actually, does it really matter how we live now? Can't we just continue to sin? Can't we continue to do whatever we want? Why does it really matter? Chapter six opens. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul said where sin abounded, grace abounded more. You might think, well, great, let's sin lots so grace abounds more. But Paul's response is a very clear no to that. By no means should we continue in sin just so that grace can abound. Why not? Well, it's because actually the nature of salvation again. Actually, in salvation, we've been united with Christ. We're in Christ. This is Christ. This is us. We're united in him. And that means whatever happened to Christ happened to us. It means that when Christ died on the cross, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. And Paul says, if we've died with Christ, then we've died to sin. That old self, that old us, which was enslaved to sin, which was contaminated by sin, where we were so ingrained in going those ways, that has died with Christ. We're no longer under the power, no longer under the uh, control of sin. And therefore, he says, because that's true, 
We must consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. We live as those who died to sin in its power, and now who are alive to God. Well, in the second half of chapter six, he uses different imagery for it. He uses the imagery of slavery. Previously, he says we were slaves to sin. We kind of had to do its bidding. A slave has to listen to and obey its master. But actually, when a slave dies, they're no longer under the power of their slave master. Well, we have died with Christ. We've been set free from that slavery. And actually, Paul says, brought into a new slavery. No longer slaves to sin, to do its bidding. Now slaves to God, now slaves to righteousness, to live his way. And these things, Paul says, they're true of us. We've died to sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. And we have to live as if that's true, even if something doesn't feel like it's true. We reckon it to be true. We act as if it's true. It's like if you fly to a different country, you get off the plane, you've been told that the time is different because the time zone is different. You don't feel like it is, whatever it now is, late at night. It doesn't feel to you like late at night, but you know it is. And you have to reckon it to be so. You have to change your watch. You have to start living your life as if it is that time, because that is true, even if you don't always feel like it's true. That's what this is like. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been freed from the power of sin. It doesn't always feel like that, but we have to start to live like that and take hold of that. That gives us, again, confidence on that final day because we're not ruled by sin. In fact, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. But he knows, again, that raises some questions. He's always thinking, what are people going to think as I say this? If we're not under law, we're under grace. Well, what does that say about the law? The law that God gave to his people in the Old Testament, does that mean the law was a bad thing? Was the law the problem? Is the law sinful? And actually, what should the law do now? What role does the law play, play in our life for Christians now? So Romans 7 takes up the question of the law. What role does it play in Christian life? How do we think about it? How do we relate to it? First, he tells us actually in the same way that being united with Christ, we died to sin. So also we died to the law. <clears throat> when you die, you're no longer under the law of the land. Death frees you from law. Well, he says in the same way, we have died with Christ and therefore we're freed from the law. The law has no authority over us. It can't point at us and accuse us. It can't try and um, uh, show up our, our faults and our failings in that way. But then does that mean the law was the problem? If we needed to die to the law, is the law bad? Is the law sin? And Paul's really clear, certainly not. The law wasn't a bad thing. The law was a good gift from God. That's why in the Old Testament, you get the psalmist delighting in the law, celebrating the law, giving thanks to God for it. The law was never the problem. Actually, really, sin is the problem. The law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. But sin in us used the law to lead us astray. It used the law to take us into sin. Our slavery to sin was the problem, not actually being under the law. But because of sin, the law could never save us. It was powerless to save us. Actually, all the law could ever do because we were enslaved to sin was reveal our sin to us and remind us of the dire situation we were in. But now we've died to the law, we've been set free from that. And it's at this point that Paul starts to talk in the first person, a very famous I passage where he's talking about I this, I that. And of course, the question inevitably arises, well, who is the I? Who is Paul talking uh, about or who is Paul talking at 
is this stuff Paul talking himself at that time as a Christian? Is it actually Paul talking before he was a Christian? Is it a Jew under the law? Is it someone between that moment of regeneration uh, and effectual calling and, and uh, converging in faith and uh, justification? Because Paul says some things here, which we think, well, where do they fit? Which side do they fit? Who is it saying this? He says things like, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And even he says, wretched man that am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? This figure, whoever they are, is in deep anguish over their situation, desiring to do one thing, but seemingly unable, feeling unable to keep the law, to do, uh, to live how um, God wants them to. And some people will think this is Paul. Some people say this is actually just a sad reality of what Christian life is like between Jesus' first and second coming. That actually until our bodies are completely renewed, until the resurrection, until Jesus comes again, we're always going to be caught in this tension between wanting to live God's way, but actually finding ourselves pretty much unable to do it. There's just this uh, incredible uh, uh, battle with sin that we are always going to um, relate and we kind of get stuck in, stuck in it. I think, though, based on what Paul says elsewhere in this letter, it's very hard to believe that this should be the situation of a Christian, based both in chapter 6 and chapter seven, uh, uh, chapter 8. sorry. This figure, this I, speaks of a power making him captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He said, I'm captive to the law of sin, but Romans 6 has said that we've been crucified with Christ. The body of sin has been brought to nothing. We were once slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Seems to be a complete contradiction to say I'm captive to sin, when in Romans 6, Paul has said we're no longer slaves to sin. In 7.14, Paul says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. But in the very next verse, chapter 8, Paul will say, you, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit. That seems to be a complete contradiction. How could a Christian on one hand say, I'm of the flesh sold under sin, and then Paul in the next chapter say, you are not of the flesh. I don't think this does or can describe the experience of a Christian. It's just too hard to reconcile it with other things that Paul actually says. It probably is talking about a Jew experiencing life outside of Christ, a Jew who knows God's law, who therefore wants to keep God's law, but actually is unable to do it. doesn't have the power that comes from Christ to do that. It's the experience we see throughout the Old Testament. The people are incapable and unable of keeping God's law. The other hint, I think, of that is when Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He then says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's almost like that should be in brackets. He wants us to realise there is an answer. There is someone who will deliver us, actually. Thank goodness, actually, there is rescue from this awful situation and a real answer. And often this whole question of the identity of the eye of this person becomes a, a real stumbling block or a real distraction in this chapter. And it is important. If we get it wrong, I think we have a very wrong understanding of what Christian life is like. If we believe this as a Christian, we have the very defeatist understanding of what Christian life should be like. And kind of actually the battle against sin becomes, well, this is what life is like. So why bother? I've got to wait for Jesus to come back. I don't think that's what Jesus wants. We should have much more confidence in this. But actually also we can overlook what Paul's actually saying by getting hung up on who the eye is. The point Paul is making is the law is good. The law was never the issue. The law is a good gift from God. And so I sometimes think here it challenges us. Sometimes we 
we even pray it. I've heard people pray it on Sundays. No, thank you, Lord, that we're no longer under all those rules and obligations, no longer had to make all those sacrifices, all those things. But actually, that was a gracious gift of God to people. The law is good and holy. The sacrifice system actually was a, a wonderful, gracious gift that God gift gave to people so they could maintain their relationship with him. The law wasn't the problem. We were the problem. The problem was with us, not with God's good gift. And that's kind of what Paul wants to communicate to us. So a Christian is set free from the power of sin, Romans 6. We're no longer under the law. It can no longer point at us and uh, accuse us and condemn us. And so what does Christian life look like? Christian life looks like life in the spirit. And that's what chapter 8 then gives us. Christian life, as we await that day when Jesus returns, is life lived in the spirit, experiencing all the goodness, all the blessings of salvation. Not abandoning ourselves to sin, not striving to keep the law, but actually living life by the spirit. It's a life, Paul says in the very first verse, where we experience total freedom from condemnation. That justification is total and permanent. There is not one bit, Paul says, of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been removed out of Adam, placed into Christ. And the Holy Spirit, he tells us, applies all the benefits of Christ's death to us, that we are those who are free from condemnation. And the purpose of that, Paul says, is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's another reminder, it's salvation from, but it's also salvation for. We're freed, uh, there's no condemnation. The Holy Spirit applies the benefits of Christ's death to us so that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So even though we're not under the law, it has no power over us, no authority over us. Actually, we live God's way. We live in obedience to him based on the work of Christ. And we do that by uh, walking by the spirit, by allowing the spirit to transform our thinking and our living. And also being led by the spirit, Paul says, means that we have been adopted as God's children. We talked about this a bit earlier under salvation. Actually, it's the very pinnacle in a sense of salvation. We're not just declared free from condemnation. We're not just declared righteous. We're also welcomed in as God's children. And Paul says in Romans 8 that any of us who are led by the Spirit, which is a Christian, because all Christians have the Spirit living in us, we receive adoption as God's sons and we receive blessings. Freedom from fear, the fear of condemnation. Amazing intimacy with God. We get to acquire Abba, Father. We get to um, know God with us. And also we get to know that we are loved even in the face of suffering. Well, actually, in a sense, Paul says one of the guarantees of those who are adopted as God's children is the experience of suffering. We are um, co-heirs with Christ as those adopted alongside him so long as we suffer with him. Suffering is just part of being a child of God, Paul says. But he takes the rest of Romans 8 to explain to us that even though suffering is an inevitable part of being a child of God, we can know, we can have confidence that we are loved by God, even in the face of suffering. Suffering never disproves the fact that we are the children of God. It's a normal part of being a child of God. And we can know that even in the midst of it, we are loved by him. And he gives us in the kind of last third, I guess, of Romans 8, three ways we can know that. Three grounds for our confidence that we are loved even when we suffer as children of God. First, there's a, a future thing. The certain hope of the coming new creation reminds us that suffering will end. And Paul says, actually, any suffering we experience now, however great and very real and painful it might be, anything actually will is not worth comparing with the future glory. 
we can know there's something better coming. There's also a present reason. It's actually when we suffer right now, the Spirit of God himself prays for us. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Actually, when we're suffering, the Spirit of God who lives inside of us, who knows exactly what's going on, he is praying for us. And this isn't, I think, as some people sometimes say, the, the gift of tongues, the gift of languages. This is the Spirit praying, not us praying. This is wordless, not words, which is the gift of languages is. It's actually when we suffer, the Spirit himself prays for us. We can know that God still loves us even in the midst of suffering because the Spirit of God is pleading to the Father for us on our behalf. And finally, we can know that we're still loved even in the face of suffering because of God's past actions, because of what has happened in the past. We can know, Paul says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him because we see what he's already done. We can have confidence based on if he's done all of that for us, then of course now we are still within his love. And that's where he gives us that chain of salvation we looked at earlier, that those who are foreknown are predestined, are called, are justified, are glorified. We can know everything God does is working all things together for good for us because he's done all these things for us. How could he not then be doing good for us? And then chapter eight closes with that wonderful declaration on the basis of all of this, being free from sin, being free from the power of the law, now living by the spirit, being adopted as God's children, who even in the face of suffering can have the guarantee of knowing we're loved by God. On the basis of that, he kind of gets this wonderful declaration that we are never separated from God's love. Let me read it because it's just kind of so good. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can we know we'll still be justified on that day? Well, look at everything that God's done. Who can bring a charge if he's brought it? We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from the power of the law. We now get to live by the spirit and fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We can have sure, sure uh, certain guarantee. We can know the sure certain guarantee that he will justify us on that day. The gospel is not only God's power for present salvation right now, it's also God's power for future salvation at that point. Let's just pause. I've said plenty. We're going to break up rooms for five or so minutes. Just talk around. What has surprised you? Or what has challenged you? What has confused you? What has excited you in what we've looked at Romans so far? Or what questions do you have? And then we'll come back. We'll do the second two sections and then we'll have a bit of space for questions. We've had um, Paul's explaining the gospel. We've had the gospel, it's power, God's power to save for present salvation. 
of how the gospel was power to save for future salvation. <clears throat> now we get the gospel was power for the fulfillment of his promises. Paul could very easily go from chapter eight into the kind of real nitty gritty, how it's actually work out in kind of daily living, how do you actually put it into practice? And he is going to get there in chapter 12, but he first knows there's a kind of big question that he needs to address. And that's what he does in chapters nine to 11, which are chapters which we might easily kind of overlook. They can be seen as a digression or maybe a bit irrelevant, that their content is not relevant to us. But at their core, Paul is wrestling with very um, deep, very significant, very important questions that are hugely relevant to us. And he starts by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Suddenly he goes from that wonderful um, <clears throat> declaration of the guarantee of God's love to actually expressing this deep anguish and sorrow. Something's clearly deeply wrong, deeply uh, troubling and affecting him. And the reason he says is because of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh i.e. the Jewish people of his day. You see, Paul's great sorrow was that the Jewish Messiah had come, the one promised to come as their saviour, their deliverer, and yet so many of his contemporaries and the Jewish people hadn't accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And that raised some really big questions. God had made promises. Is God not faithful to his promises? Is that what's happening here? Or maybe God is faithful, God wants to be faithful, but actually he's not powerful enough to keep his promises. Paul's saying actually does the fact that the Jews aren't all responding to Jesus as the Messiah disproves some of the truths about God, either his promises or his faithfulness. So in chapters 9 to 11, he's showing God's power and the salvation is God's power to fulfill his promises. And so this is still relevant to us. It's a relevant question to us. Is God faithful to his promises? Does he have the power to fulfill his promises? And as Paul wrestles with why it is that the Jewish people haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, he gives two answers kind of in parallel both of them he says are true and we find it very hard to reconcile them to put them together but he says both of them are true and holding both of them to be true is kind of the way we get an understanding and it helps actually in some of the stuff we said earlier about election two things are true some of the jewish people haven't accepted jesus as the jewish messiah partly or in one track because of god's election paul said it's god's doing it's what he has chosen to do but paul also says it's because of Israel's and people's unbelief. It's because people's doing it. It's what they've chosen to do. Paul literally simultaneously says it's God's doing and it's people's doing. What God has chosen and what people have chosen. And he holds those two intention. And he kind of works through those two in turn. Chapter nine is about God's doing. And this is what came up a lot earlier when we talked about elections. It's very much kind of on that kind of theme. He says it's not as if God has failed and he uses the Old Testament to show that God had always promised to save the people whom he chose. He never promised to save all of the physical descendants of Abraham. So the fact that now some of the physical descendants of Abraham weren't responding to Jesus doesn't mean Jesus isn't being faithful or God isn't being faithful to his promises. Actually, God had never promised to save all people in their family line in that way. It was always, Paul says, the children of promise. Because remember, Abraham had two sons, had Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the son born through Hagar, the son born through, in a sense, natural ways. Isaac was the son of promise. He was the one promised to Abraham and Sarah. And he was the one born when, frankly, it seemed impossible. It was a, bit of a miracle that he was ever born. He was a child of promise. And Abraham was told it's through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the promises would go, even though Ishmael was the older son. Isaac is the child of promise. And it's always been God's planning intention 
to rescue people through the child of promise, i.e. not through natural circumstances, but through God. And he gives other examples as well. We talked about them earlier, Jacob and Esau, how he chooses Jacob, the younger son, not the older son. How he talks about, um, Paul talks about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how actually God ordained what was happening in the Exodus for his purposes to show his glory. He's saying, actually, no, God has always said that he's going to act, he's going to choose. It'll be those whom he chooses who respond. And he knows that many of us at this point will be thinking, well, is that fair? How does it work? Is it fair for God to choose some and that some haven't responded because they haven't been chosen? And what's fascinating, actually, is Paul doesn't try and give us a logical response to that. Actually, when the kind of imaginary figure Paul is uh, writing to me and thinking about it says, well, is this fair? If God hardens, how can he find fault? Paul says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He's basically saying there are points we get to. We just have to recognize and accept God is God. We are the created. He is the creator. And he will do as he pleases and he will do what is right because he is good and just. And we don't always understand that, but we just have to kind of leave that in his hands. And there's a lot we can learn here. Paul doesn't try to give a logical explanation for it all. He just says it's not for us to judge. It's not for us to question. Almost maybe it's not for us to expect to understand. How should we, the created, expect to understand the creator? And then from the very end of chapter 9 is chapter 10 he picks up a second theme one theme one thing that's happened is actually god has chosen to elect some the reason only some have responded is because only some have been elected also paul says it's true people haven't responded to the gospel because of their own choice jews in his day have chosen not to accept jesus or have rejected jesus because they've chosen not to accept him and actually he says they've tried to be saved by the law rather than to be saved by jesus and this, he says, is all despite the fact that the gospel had gone out. The gospel had gone out. They'd had the opportunity to hear this good news. And yet, actually, they haven't responded to it. They haven't accepted it. People's unbelief is placed in parallel. and Their choice is placed in parallel with the choosing of God and explanation here. And Paul gets to a bit of a conclusion in chapter 11. Has God rejected his people? Has the fact that not all the Jewish people are accepting the Jewish Messiah? Does that prove that God is rejecting his people? Paul says, no, absolutely not. He himself is proof that's not the case. He's a Jew who has responded to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Clearly, God hasn't rejected his people. Actually, God has done just what he always said. God had a remnant, a, a subset of people whom he would preserve, whom he would save. He gives the example of being Elijah when everyone was worshipping Baal, but God had kept a, a select remnant, a number of people who would not bow the knee to Baal. That's always the way that he says that God has done it. He says the elect have responded, but the rest were hardened. But even here, he sees some kind of kind of uh, mysterious purpose. Gentiles are being welcomed in, he says, even while some Jewish people are not responding to the Messiah. And that, he says, actually is meant to draw Jews in. There's meant to be a sense of jealousy that grows, actually, which attracts people and draws people in, which somehow, he says, is going to lead to a great ingathering of the Jews. He says there's this mystery, a partial hardening of Israel until, he says, the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then 11.26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Which after everything he said is kind of confusing and complex. What does that mean? It's unlikely that all Israel will be saved means all Jewish people. Given what Paul said, what's come before, it doesn't really kind of fit. It could mean all the elect in Israel that would 
makes sense or kind of fits with what Paul says. I think most likely it means all people who become Christians, all Israel be saved in the sense of all Christians who are the new Israel. And so in Galatians 6, Paul explicitly refers to the church as the new Israel. God's people have always been the people of choice. It's always been that internal thing, the circumcision of the heart, not just the circumcision of the body, which is the key thing. And that, uh, that forms the, the people of God, as it were. And so Paul knows there's this complex interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And he doesn't really try to give us an answer. He just says both are true and we have to hold them. But also what's striking is he doesn't get frustrated by that. He doesn't uh, make accusations against God in the kind of uh, confusing uh, confusion of this. It doesn't lead him to despair. Actually, it leads him to worship. Paul ends his section of worship. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I think it's really instructive for us that when Paul reaches just kind of the, the limits of human understanding, these things that are just really hard to get heads around, he doesn't, as I say, get frustrated. He doesn't despair. He worships. He realises his position as a creature and that the right response of the creature to the creator is to worship him. I think that's a very instructive, a good example he sets to us. So that section is God's, the gospel, God's power to fulfil his promises. God is fulfilling his promises there. And then he can now move on to God's power uh, of the gospel, God's powerful transformed living. What does it look like in practice to live out that Romans 8 kind of idea of life by the spirit? We get a key connective here, the word therefore, because of everything he said in chapters 1 to um, end of 11, what he's now about to say is true. Therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or rational worship. If you think all the way back to Romans 1, the problem in Romans 1 was misdirected worship, worshipping the created rather than the creator. And now the result of salvation is right worship, rational worship, spiritual worship. We're not to be conformed, he says, to the world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's Romans 8, to be people of the spirit living by the spirit. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Romans 1, we became futile in our thinking, in our rejection of God. Here, our thinking is transformed and renewed. And Paul goes on to give practical examples. The end of chapter, or the rest of chapter 12 into 13 are lots of often quick fire kind of instructions and guidance on Christian living, what it looks like to live those things out. Many of them, if you read through them, you'll notice are about kind of harmonious relationships, about interpersonal relationships. He's showing how the gospel and Christian living flowing from the gospel will bring that unity between Jew and Gentile that's so needed in this church at the time. And all of it, he says, at the end of chapter 13, can be summarised in that command to love one another. Again, you can see it's about uniting people. He says the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. He says actually the whole of God's law really is encompassed in actually loving one another in these ways. Loving one another is fulfilling the law, just kind of akin to what Jesus says about the summary of the law and the most important commandments. 
and then really focusing in on that issue of the division between Jewish and Gentile believers in chapters 14 and 15, he tackles some specific situations that clearly somehow he's become aware of happening in the church. He talks of weak and strong people. People have different views on some different topics, probably part of this Jew-Gentile uh, divide going on. They have different views really on how they honour God. Some people, he describes as the weak, think they shouldn't eat meat that's being offered to idols and they should keep the Sabbath and particular special days like that. Other people, and Paul refers to as the strong, think actually we don't need to worry about what meat we eat and actually we don't need to keep the Sabbath and other particularly special days to honour God. There's diversity of views here. And what's really fascinating is Paul doesn't say this group are right and that group are wrong. We'll need to accept this and kind of move on. Actually, he tells them how they can live in unity, even in the face of these, uh, these kind of disagreements with each other. He does clearly think one side is right and one's wrong. He does seem to side with the strong. He thinks that they're right in the actual understanding. But actually, he wants to foster unity before he wants to foster uh, correctness and them getting, them getting those things right. He tells them not to pass judgment on each other, but actually to make sure and to make a commitment to not being a hindrance to another, not causing others to go against their conscience in that way, not causing people to stumble in that way. And what he's talking about here are what we might call disputable matters, things on which Christians can agree to disagree. He thinks there's not a problem here, and the reason it's not a problem is these people weren't saying, oh, actually, you need to do this or that in order to commend yourself to God. In order to be justified, in order to be in a right legal standard for God, you need to do this or that. That's not what they're saying. And so Paul actually is happy for them to since have these disagreements and to work for unity together. That's why what he says here is so radically different to what we're saying in Galatians. In Galatians, there's some real similarity. Some of it is about what you eat and who you eat with. And there he accuses them of believing a different gospel. He very strongly comes down against it and is very clear in what the truth is. That's because in Galatia, people thought these things were necessary to commend yourself with God to be justified. In Galatia, people are saying you've got to have Jesus and you've got to keep the food laws and different things in order to be justified. Here in Rome, they're just saying, no, we're right with Jesus, but we love Jesus. We want to worship him. We want to honour him in the way that we live. And we think the best way to do that is not to eat this meeting, is to keep these days. And actually, in that context, Paul is fine for there to be disputable matters, disagreements, because actually it's a matter of how we honour God, not a matter of how we find our legal standing before God. And he kind of sums it up in verse 15 by saying, here we can follow the example of Jesus. Actually, when we have these disputable matters, we follow Jesus' example. He didn't seek to please himself. Actually, he acted for the well-being of others. We're to welcome, he says, one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. The Jews and the Gentiles in the congregation here should be welcoming each other, reconciled together, following the example of Christ who laid down himself for them. So you can see how the gospel becomes here that the power for Christian living and particularly Christian living in the context of the Roman church where Jews and Gentiles are divided, are, are falling out or um, at odds or whatever is going on. And then finally, Paul wraps up with the conclusion, second half of verse of uh, chapter 15 into 16. He again reminds him he wants to come to them. He wants to preach the gospel to them. He reveals he wants to go to Spain. Actually, they're going to be like a, a springboard for him to get to Spain. And chapter 16 is one of those chapters in the Bible that's easy to overlook. It's a, a list of names. Paul is greeting lots of different people. 
a list of names if we're honest in the bible we often kind of switch off we don't quite see why they're there they're a bit boring a bit difficult to get through but actually this list is fascinating paul's writing to a church he's never visited and yet he knows all these people names there's all these kind of personal connections which just makes the point that paul valued friendship he cared about these people people he'd met all over the, the roman world seemingly he'd remembered their names he knew about them paul hugely values friendship and relationship it's an interesting example an interesting challenge the variety of people is also significant there are men and women, couples and singles, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slave people and free people. This is actually an example of the unity that Paul is calling for. Even though he's talking about a diverse group of people, he's uniting them and addressing them all as the church together. It's the power of the gospel in action. And also, we see each different person has a part to play. He talks of people who are fellow workers those who host uh, churches in their houses, those who worked hard, those who are fellow prisoners, who are workers in the Lord, who worked hard in the Lord. He's saying all these people have a part to play. It's not just the big names like Paul who have a part to play in God's mission. Actually, all these people he can name in the Roman church, every single one has a part to play, a role to play in God's mission. If you remember right at the beginning, we saw this letter is motivated by mission. It all flows out of Paul's desire to preach the gospel uh, to the Romans and elsewhere. It's a missional letter and actually ends with a reminder to all of us that it isn't just Paul's job, that's all of our job. All of us get to be fellow workers in the Lord. We always get to do different things to play our part. So chapter 16 isn't, I think, a little kind of thing tagged on the end. Actually, it's a really fitting end, showing the unity brought by the gospel Paul preaches. And also the gospel, the fact the gospel needs to go out so all of us have a part to play and can play a part in that. I think it's Tom Wright who thinks chapter 16 is the most important chapter in the letter, which is classic Tom Wright wanting to be different from everyone else. But I can kind of see his point. It's certainly very, very relevant to the message of the letter. That is, I know, a crazy whistle-stop tour. I hope it is useful. As I say, the notes are fairly comprehensive if it helps. Do find a time to go through Romans to kind of put these pieces together, maybe using the map. But we can probably pause and just have a few minutes of questions if people got five minutes, if there's anything people want to ask. Well, great. Yeah, Should I take questions in the chat? Oh, question in the chat, yeah. Which is from Becky. Thank you, Becky. It was just it was, um, Romans 7 talks about the law being good and holy and righteous. But you're right, Becky, in 2 Corinthians, he refers to the law as being the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. It's a very good question. I would want to have a look at two things and see exactly how he says it. Partly it'll be uh, polemical in the sense of a different context, he's trying to say different things. If in two things he's particularly trying to push against people who are unhelpfully using the law, um, he's you know, kind of using a very strong language and a strong way of talking about things, I guess, to make that point strongly. Um, but yes, I've heard I can't give a strong answer because my memory of two things is not good, so I'd have to have a look. So that's a good challenge Sorry. to me thank you no it's a really good question no, no, i i hesitated asking it for oh that's a pig of a question but i just thought <laughs> you might <laughs> you might know <laughs> i'm never i'm never afraid to say i don't know so that's fine <laughs> becky's like what's the hardest question i can think of <laughs> yes i'm going to ask them. <laughs> but hey, this is the place for it becky and yeah Thank you. It didn't help. That's what I read this morning. So I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks very much. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> I, I, I do wonder. I think Paul's answer would be he's not what the law does, not what the law is. But I can't guarantee that about reading the text. I think that's probably if I was Paul, that's what I would say, I think. 
But Great. thanks very much. Well, thank you, uh, everyone, for coming on this morning, especially since we're coming out of lockdown and you actually have choices about what you do on Saturday morning. You know, there's other things you could do. So thank you for coming on here. It's been a great morning. Um, yeah, with Andrew, I don't know, my mind has been bent a bit and made to think and challenged and everything, which is what you want from School of Theology. Again, as Andrew mentioned, the notes are very comprehensive. So great. I would encourage you, really helpful to go through and like just read through them again when you've got like a have a, have a bit, have a cup of coffee or something over the rest of the weekend. Just have a skim through. Will really help remind you of some of the stuff we we've, we've looked at uh, today.